How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Hi, it's Paul from Bible Feed, and I'm here with Dan Weatherall, and we're going to cover one of our biblical themes in this episode. So, first of all, welcome, Dan. How are you doing? Hi, Paul. Very good, thanks. Good. Not too cold in this uh, icy spell yeah, that we're having. We've certainly got a wintry blast here in the UK, haven't we? Which uh, tends to happen every winter, but everyone just seems to make a meal of it all the time. It's like, oh, we're, temperatures are <laughs> dropping below zero, and that, that's, that's what happens, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we can't possibly cope. <laughs> Thick jumpers on. And time to talk about a biblical theme or concept where we're going to pick a phrase and see how it's used throughout the Bible and in different parts of the Bible, aim to get a really clear view of what that phrase means in in the Bible, what the writers were meaning to communicate to us through it. And the topic this time is quite an important one. It's the Son of God. What does that phrase, what does it mean for something or someone to be the Son of God? And, you know, clearly that's relevant to this time of year as we approach Christmas and when many people are thinking about about Jesus, the Son of God. And so that's the concept that we want to, to think about. So where do you want to start with this, Dan? Yeah, that's right. The first thing probably to say is that this this is a huge theme. A lot of the themes we do try and tackle are, <laughs> aren't they? And I suppose just to make it a little bit easier to deal with, we're really concentrating on what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God. But by doing that, we'll be we're having a look at other passages and other instances where different entities, different individuals have that, that name, that designation. So that will help a little bit. So yeah, in that way, you're not going to answer every question. And I think there's a natural question that comes out of this right from the outset is that there's sometimes the assumption that the term the Son of God or the fact that Jesus is the Son of God comes with the assumption that he is part of God, he is divine, he is you know part of the Trinity, he is God the Son, for example. It's very much tagged along to those ideas. And I suppose yeah. that's part of what we've got to try and work out biblically. Is that part of what the Bible is trying to communicate? Okay, so we're going to be focusing on what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, and in particular, whether it's right to assume from that a level of divinity that might often be associated with that in the concepts of the Trinity. Mm. But so we want to deal with it biblically. So so let's uh, let's get into a Bible verse or two, and you know perhaps the most well known, most recognised verse about Jesus is John chapter three and verse sixteen, uh, which is you know for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So that's sometimes a verse that is associated with God sending his son. Mm -hmm. You know, in my memory, sometimes I'm not quite sure whether the verse is God sent his only son or God gave his only son and, and therefore might appear to be about his birth. And, you know, God so loved the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so much love on display there. So 
So tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. Place. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's the good news translation. I think that's it. For God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. And right. I, I, I don't know. You, you know, that is a God does love the world so much. You know, there's a it's a huge immeasurable amount that He loves. But actually, the way this verse should be translated, or the way it should be understood, isn't so much about how much He loves, but it's it's more about the way in which God loved the world. You know, God loved the world in this way. God so loved the world okay. in doing this. So, I think that's a helpful thing. I think you, you pretty much get that in, a, in every commentary or, or that, that you read about this. So, so that that's the way this verse, this sentence is structured. So, God loved the world in this way. Um, so, how did He love the world? Well, He loved the yeah. world by giving His only Son. So, that's a phrase that you could interpret in lots of different ways, couldn't you? Just out of context, we could think, yeah, this is him sending his son. But actually, the context, as always, is really relevant, really important. But just a few verses earlier, um, we're reading about Moses, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way, mm. that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you can see there's a bit of a parallel there with what, what the previous verses are talking about. And actually, what's it talking about? Well, it's talking about the Son of Man, which is interesting. That's another title of Jesus there, isn't it? The, the Son of Man yeah. is, is lifted up so that people believe in him can have a, eternal life. And that lifting up is the same as God giving his Son. And, you know, what, what's the lifting up of Jesus refer to? Yeah, I mean, it sounds very much like it's more to do with the crucifixion. Yeah. His sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, later on in the gospel, he talks about the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all people will be drawn to him. And then John explicitly writes, he said this about his death. So really, this is, yeah, right. this is talking about the death of Jesus. God loved the world in this way by giving his son, allowing his son to be lifted up in death. We're sort of skipping around the, the term son and, and only son and what that means, I suppose, mm. at this moment. Yeah, and you can see the clear parallel between verse 14 and 16. They've both got the phrase that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But while it's good and helpful to understand that this is about, this is the way in which God demonstrated his love to the world by giving his only son, which is more about his sacrifice than his birth, that's not telling us much yet about who Jesus is and what it means to be an only son. Mm. It's, it's talking about God's love. But there is that phrase, his only son, or in some translations, it's the only begotten mm. son in the King James Version, I think. So let's unpack that phrase, that concept. Yeah, so the phrase only begotten sounds like this is something almost metaphysical or, you know, this is about the way in which he was mm. begotten. There's a lot of theology that was was riding on, on that phrase, lots of theological discussions in, in the past. But actually, it's the phrase that's now often just translated only son in that sense yeah. really means one of a kind, sort of unique, as it were. So, the Net Bible, the, the note in the Net Bible is pretty helpful with this because it talks about where that Greek word is used in different places. And for example, it's used as a description of Isaac, who is not Abraham's only son, but was one of a kind because he was the child of the promise. So, the word means one of a kind. So, it's it's designating Jesus as a, a son who is unique and special and the, what's the way to describe it? The apple of God's eye. This is the the real unique okay. son that, that God gives. So, it's not talking here about sort of metaphysics. It's not talking about how he was begotten, how he was 
generated an eternal generation or anything like that. It's talking yeah. about the fact that here is God's special, unique son, which means that Jesus is really important. He's not just a regular person. He's not just um, any old person that God decided to give and lift up on a cross. No, this is his special son that he's done this. And that's why it's showing his love Yeah, because he's giving his yeah. special, unique son. Yeah. And it's very relevant in the context of that phrase, mm. isn't it? This is the way in which God loved the world in that he was prepared to give something of which there was only one. Yeah. So al although you said there that that word means Jesus is uniquely the son of God, mm. you've referred to that phrase only son being used of other people like Isaac. So it's not a, it's not a phrase that is uniquely used about Jesus. And I, I can think of a couple of examples from, from the Old Testament, but maybe just run through how that phrase is used elsewhere. Yeah. So, so this is why... I think that'd be helpful. Yeah. No, that's right. I think it is helpful to, to realize this. So, for example, in the Old Testament, where this phrase is used in a number of places is to describe the nation of Israel. So that's almost like a metaphor, as it were, isn't it? For God's special relationship with mm. this, this people, Israel. In Exodus, Israel is my son, my yeah. firstborn son, therefore let my people go, you know, that, yeah. that kind of thing. And then you get that, for example, Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So, and, and that's referring to the, the nation of Israel in the first instance, and how that the more they were called, the more they went away. So, and they're a disobedient son of, of God, as it were, in in that prophecy of Hosea. So, and interestingly, that that same phrase is quoted about Jesus. Yeah, it is. Yeah, isn't it? In, yeah, in Matthew's. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And and maybe the the parallel and in, or more importantly, the contrast is being drawn when by Matthew when in quoting that alongside lots of other quotations from, from the Old Testament. He's he's drawing on. Israel's designation as God's son and then showing that Jesus is now God's son and is succeeding. He, Jesus succeeds, yeah. resists temptation in the wilderness. Jesus is called out of Egypt and is the obedient son, not the disobedient son. So that's another way I think that the Gospels are, are highlighting that Jesus is the unique son of God, the one of a kind, the, the absolute pinnacle yeah. of this. Um, so, so that's helpful just to remember the nation of Israel, in one sense, are, are metaphorically called the, the Son of God, and then and then you get the the phrase in the plural, sons of God, don't you? Quite a few times, and there's mm. that one example, very bizarre and difficult passage, which an enigmatic passage in in Genesis six, which increasingly people seem to flock towards because it was intrigue in Genesis 6 where the sons of God mm. saw that the daughters of men were attractive they took as their wives as they choose and you know his, I just use this as one little example of the way this term is used here in a very very different context and you know and it's expanded so much more in much later writings like the book of Enoch where some assumptions are made about what this is talking about all the gaps and questions that, yeah. that are there in, in Genesis yeah. 6 are filled in by by imagination. Exa exactly. Yeah. And then suddenly we get a whole sort of an angelology and demonology and things that, that come from that. But th then sometimes what's done then is it, a line is drawn from this passage about, well, these okay, these are sons of God, these are divine figures, which is not necessarily correct. That's that's one view, which is sort of influenced by Enoch. But the line is then sometimes drawn of these divine figures. Therefore, when we see Jesus called the son of God, oh, he's therefore a divine figure. And uh, he's perhaps the, the pinnacle of those sons of God. And I think we've seen John 3.16, the one of a kind son. We've seen already that he's different from the way 
Israel is called as the Son of God. And again, we don't need to draw this line, this connection between the way the term's used to describe whoever it's describing in Genesis 6. It's just showing the diversity yeah. of the, the way it's yeah, used. And I guess, just thinking about the logic of that, even if you were to take the view that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are divine beings of some nature, mm. angels, whatever, mm. they would be created beings. Mm. And and so even if you draw the line from that to Jesus and say Jesus is, is one of these sons of God, divine beings, he's still a, a created being, mm. which is not how God the Son is presented as part of the Trinity. So right. even drawing that line doesn't really get get to, to supporting that position. other examples of sons of yeah, god in the bible i suppose just jumping right to the to the new testament the you know after jesus you, you get the the idea that we can all be called the children of god the, the sons of god you know that yeah. comes out in quite a few of the letters you know, for example john's letter 1 john 3 in that sense again we can all become sons of god or daughters of god as it were children of god yeah. but it's Again, different in the sense that in Romans, Paul talks about adoption, doesn't he? This whole metaphor of being adopted, as it were, into the family of God. So again, I think that's probably a slightly different way that it's used from John 3.16, God's only mm. son, where he, he gave his unique, one-of-a-kind son. But it's important to sort of see that God's willing to embrace people into his family. That's, that's a really valuable and important message to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so... I think that's all part of part of the mixture. There's all these different peripheral ways that this term, that this idea is used. But right at the centre of it, we have Jesus, God's only son, God's unique, one-of-a-kind son. We need to consider what, what that means really in, in context, yeah. what it means when we apply that term to Jesus. Yeah, okay. So there's a variety of ways in which the, the phrase is used and applied to some quite different Mm. situations and contexts as as we just do that brief survey of, of the concept of the Son of God in the Bible. And we've seen, I think, the parallel between Israel being called, you know, my firstborn, and and that being then applied to Jesus. You know, almost the same phraseology used from the Old Testament and then applied to Jesus. So while the phrase Son of God is applied to Jesus, the only Son, and that's not necessarily uniquely applied to Jesus, there is some sense in which Jesus is a one of a kind, is mm. unique, and and the way he was produced as the Son of God is unique. So let's look at the key passage yeah. that talks about that in Luke's Gospel and Chapter One. I'll just read the the key section there, and then maybe you can you can tell us all about okay. it. Okay, it's Luke Chapter One, and I'm going to start at verse twenty six. So here we go. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Yeah, there we go. It's quite a famous passage, isn't it? Especially this time of year about the angel appearing to Mary. It's a fascinating passage because clearly this child that is going to be born, Jesus, is the son of Mary, you shall bear a son. That's that's very clear. Yeah. And it says the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So there's this certainty that there is human lineage. He is his mm. father David, his ancestor is David. And you know, that's linking him to the the promises of the the kingship, the kingdom restored, all those ideas that, that we, we talk about on our podcasts. So that's a really important part of this, that Jesus is linked through ancestry to to his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there'll be no mm. end. So that's really part, one half of the message, isn't it? But then you get this as well. He will be called the son of the most high. And you think, well, why is that? What does that mean? The son of the, son of the most high, the son of God. Well, how can he be called the son of the most high? Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, says the angel, and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, this child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And she's a virgin. She hasn't been with a man. Mm. This is impossible, um, except it isn't impossible because it's with God. This is the unique, miraculous event, something really special and really unique. It's We could say it's one of a kind. It, this doesn't happen anywhere else in the Bible. Yeah. This is one of a kind, this this miraculous conception of Jesus here. But it's it's one of a kind, but it's linked to the fact that your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son um, and she, she was called barren. So, there's a there's a link there, I think. There's a line drawn between the miracle there of, well, that's John the Baptist who is going to be born there yeah. from Elizabeth and Zechariah. So, that's a, a, a miracle. They were old and then they conceived in their old age. But then Mary's is more unique, as it were. Um, yeah. And then when you go back through the Old Testament, there are these events where God causes miracles, barren women give birth, you know, you go right back to Abraham and, and Sarah, Hannah and Samuel. There's all these occasions God in, intervening and, and causing his purpose to sort of be fulfilled. And then ultimately, there's this pinnacle, this one of a kind event where this miracle is, I don't know if this, this is a way of saying it, the most miraculous of them all. I don't know if you can have something more miraculous well, or not. Well, I, I suppose in those other examples, um, there's a man involved yeah. and the resulting child is not given the title, mm. the son of God, that they're miracles, but this is a unique miracle that leads to the phrase, the son of the most high mm. or the Son of and that's why that's how God shows his love, remember. He's giving his only unique one of a kind son. So this this is his son. You, you know, this isn't anyone else's son. This isn't Joseph's son. Joseph yeah. helped, I'm sure, to, to bring him up. But this is God giving his only son. So that really does show the extent and the manner of love that he's he's shown to us. Yeah, and there and there are other places in the gospels where Jesus is called the Son of God. In some ways, there are times when that claim is being tested. You know, if you are the son of God, mm. then you should be able to do this. And 
and, and even right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, it's the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that, that claim is there throughout the Gospels. So I think where we're getting to is that Jesus being called the Son of God doesn't necessarily automatically make him divine in the full sense of the meaning of that. But perhaps just to think about that and think about, for example, the way that C.S. Lewis puts, the way that we should think about Jesus, you know, he's either liar, lord, or lunatic. And so there is this, it's not a dilemma because there's three of them, it's a trilemma. Yeah. You know, he's either liar, lord, or lunatic. And I think in the context of that, C.S. Lewis means, lord means he's God mm. himself. If he isn't God, then he must be one of those other two, a liar or lunatic, mad or bad. Yeah, so that's one characterization of a very common reaction to understanding Jesus as being the son of God, not not referring to any form of divinity. So we've not seen any of those pointers. And and often there's this reaction to, well, if that's not the case, then he was a liar. You know, if that's not the case, then he must have yeah. been crazy. And this is what C.S. Lewis said, wasn't he? So is, is he right or is he wrong? He's sort of right in that if we change it a little bit, then if we understand what the word Lord can also mean, as in master, Jesus is often mm. called Lord, the, the the master, the ruler, the king, yeah. then, then in that sense, yes, if he's going around claiming to be the ruler, the Messiah, the designated anointed one of God, then he either is that, or he's lying about it, or he's mad. So that kind of works. He's claiming to be the son of God, the king designated by, by God. So it's more about what is he claiming to be? That's right, yeah. Rather than making, jumping to an immediate yeah. assumption about what that, what I think that so, claim yeah. is. Yeah. What, is, what is he claiming to be? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's there's passages, aren't there, that in, in the Gospels. So, for example, Matthew 16 comes up in the other Gospels as well where it talks about, he's talking to his disciples and he says, well, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's talking about himself and and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. But then he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus says, well done, blessed to you, Simon. You've you've understood this mm. from, from God. So yeah, that, that's a really key passage about how Jesus viewed himself and how his disciples viewed him. And uh, and it's well, he's the Christ, so he's the Messiah, the one who's going to be king. Remember, yeah. Luke one, sit on the throne of his father David, and he's the son of the living God, which is exactly what we've seen in Luke one as well. So Jesus claimed to be that Messiah. He claimed to be the special, unique, one of a kind son of God. And so far, none of it is about claiming to be God in that sense. So yeah, okay. So <clears throat> maybe it's time to just drop back to John three sixteen again which we which we started with because you know that was about god loving the world and giving his only son so this raises the question isn't it necessary for jesus to have been god to be divine for that work of sacrifice to be effective if he's not god he's something else then doesn't that nullify the effectiveness of his sacrifice to to save humanity mm. 
Is there some perspective we can we can put on that? Yeah, so so that's another common response or a common concern I think people often have. Well, if this is the case, doesn't that just mean there was some regular guy up on the cross? You know, what couldn't it just have been anyone? God could have just picked anyone to go up on the cross to to save. And ha- and how does that, you know, how does the blood of anyone, any regular guy, <laughs> how does that save anyone? That's that's the way it's often characterised. But and I suppose one thing we need to think about is well, nowhere we've seen is that Jesus is just just any old person, is is he? We've all the way through this no. has been the unique, the one of a kind that he. This is the way that God's shown his love by allowing his only special, unique, one-of-a-kind son to go and give his life. So, he didn't just pick anyone at all. But then hmm. then underlying all of this, though, again, the, scripturally, is there anywhere that says, well, God had to die or, you know, part of God had to give himself um to atone for the sins of the world well well actually no there isn't anywhere i'm not aware of anywhere and there's something that says the very opposite Mm. so hebrews chapter 2 is talking about the sacrifice of jesus so this is how the love of god is shown in giving his son and it describes this hebrews 2 verse 14 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself talking about jesus likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil verse 17 well verse 16 surely it's not angels that he helps he helps the offspring of abraham so the point there is he's not there to save angels divine beings he's not there to to save anyone else other than humans the offspring of abraham human beings therefore verse 17 he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful faithful high priest in the service of god to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And and because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who've been tempted. So the whole point of this passage is right. for Jesus to suffer, to die, and to be an effective propitiation, however you understand that, the, the point is to be effective, he had to be human. That's the message here. So the, the challenge, you know, it's important that God dies on the cross is actually a direct contradiction of this. Mm. It's, it's actually a human, a unique human, yeah, albeit, but it's a human that That's needs right. to die on the cross. And and if, if God was interested in saving angels, then it would be an angel that, yeah. that needed to, yeah. is the kind of implication of that, that the logic in that argument, yeah. isn't it? That's right. And it wasn't just anyone. I think need to emphasize this over and over again. This was yeah. Jesus, his special son that he gave and and i think that that starts to get to the heart of what's really going on on the cross it's god giving his only son which then should cut to our hearts and start to make us realize what what we're made of and who we should be rather than who we often make make ourselves to be okay shall i try and summarize okay (laughs) so so we've looked at the phrase the son of god and we've seen it appear in different parts of the bible about different people and and groups of people and, and used in different ways. The phrase son of God isn't about someone being God, although I think we've emphasized and we'll emphasize it repeatedly, <laughs> Jesus as the son of God represents a unique divine intervention mm. in the normal course of events, the normal course of history. It's God reaching out, intervening, doing something, producing a son. And actually in Luke chapter 1, where that was described, that conversation between the angel and Mary, there's an unusual level of detail given about how that happened. You know, the, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and, and you will conceive. That, you know, it's very, very clear there's, there's a miracle there, a unique miracle. So 
it isn't clear from that that this is about God becoming human or God entering humanity. And and the language of John three sixteen that we've looked at, God gave his only son, is isn't about God giving himself, but it's, it's a very relatable concept of a father giving his son and his only son, this unique, one-of-a-kind son. And that's a measure of love. In this way, God showed his love. We can really easily understand and relate to that. So so just moving on from that, the, the language that we hear around this time of year, around Christmas time, it is, is often a word, and I think you used it earlier, the word that's used is incarnation. Mm. The word that's used about you know, Jesus appearing in earth, being born, is about incarnation, God being human, you know, God with us. And there's, you know, the carols that we might hear, for example, hark the herald angels sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And that's, you know, meaning God with us. So what what do we make of that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's clearly a concept that's... It- that's out there. Yeah, and, and this is the, the difficulty navigating all of this at this time of year, isn't it? I think we've been, I, I think, hopefully very biblical in, in looking at these passages. The key passage, like Luke 1, we've explored this idea. And and really, there's a real stark contrast, I think, between what we've read in Luke 1 and other passages. And then now suddenly the, the lyrics of this carol, you know, really, that's that's not the sort of language we've seen in, in the Bible, is it? Very different from mm. Luke 1, very different from from the way Matthew 1 talks about it. We do get that that name Emmanuel, Jesus our Emmanuel, which comes directly from, yeah. from Matthew 1. Yeah, it? I was going to say, it talks about angels singing, you know, Emmanuel. So the phrase that jumps out as, yeah. I don't see that is the incarnate yeah. deity, but it, it's got scriptural things wrapped around yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I'm veiled in flesh as well. You know, the mm. Godhead is sort of sitting behind a flesh curtain. Yeah. Is that really what's going on? Yeah. You know, it's uh, rather than Jesus yeah. being literally you know, human being. So you're right, Emmanuel comes directly from Matthew 1. It is the scriptural thing. And it it means, as Matthew tells us, God with us. That's what it means. So often there's that leap made, therefore, oh, therefore God, Jesus is God. He's God with us. But you need to go back to where it comes from. There's a quotation that Matthew uses, and it comes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. A child is born at the time of the prophet Isaiah, at the time of, the, of King Ahaz, who is given the name Emmanuel. And that child is to be a sign for the king at that particular time that God was working with his people to save them, save them from their enemies. Mm. So, you know, the child in Isaiah's time wasn't God. He wasn't the Godhead veiled in flesh. Mm. He wasn't the incarnate deity. It was a a regular child, (laughs) as it were, a child of promise, a child of sign, and that was a way of, of showing or proving that God was working with his people and what God was with his people to, to save them. So, so that's what's happening again, really. I think that's the claim with the designation Emmanuel. Jesus again is this sign. And again, the unique, special, one-of-a-kind sign. You know, he's the Virgin Mary conceiving and bearing a son. So this is a, a unique sign that God is working with his people to save them and, and that God is with us. So so that's yeah. what I think is going on there. But the language this time of year, a lot of Christian writings, hymns, carols, is this language of incarnation. And it's sometimes inescapable. Just for example, the Christianity Today Advent blog in, in November, some some days ago, talked about this week of Advent, we focus on the events surrounding the nativity when the promised one, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the light of the world entered into humanity as a newborn child. And again, I can see very scriptural terms used sort of 
wrapped around the the phrases that don't appear in Luke one or Matthew one or anywhere else. You know, God hasn't entered into humanity as a newborn child. That's not what we've seen, is it? It's very different from how it's described with the power of the highest overshadows Mary. Therefore, this child to be born will be called the Son of God. That's a very different explanation, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there are some there are some really good carols for this time of year that that don't have any hint of incarnation language in them my, my favorite oh holy night which is which is such a great one okay just yeah i know it. Yeah, yeah oh holy night the stars is brightly shining it is the night of the dear saver's birth you know it's, okay great no no hint of incarnation and it talks yeah. about the world in sin and and then till he appeared the soul felt its worth the thrill of hope the weary world rejoices great the, the night when christ was born it, it's really quite straightforward actually in, in its language which is yeah, but but quite powerful. So yeah, there's some there's some great carols that we can we can sing and wholeheartedly and be moved by. <laughs> yeah, my personal favourite is the one is the one by Gustav Holst in the Bleak Midwinter, okay. which uh, is mostly about the weather, uh, <laughs> which is which is a very English topic of conversation. Brilliant. So. Okay, so well, thank you very much, Dan, for for just helping us to to see where that concept, the Son of God, appears through the Bible and how it applies uniquely to Jesus. I think we can, as always, point you to a, a few more episodes or resources that, that we have on Bible Feed. For example, there's an episode that was a very popular one, actually, on stress and anxiety. And, and what came through from that was the the importance of a human Jesus, you know, that having himself suffered being tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. That's That was a, a really useful episode. And there's uh, we seem to recommend this one every time. There's a series of episodes on Matthew. One of them specifically covers the concept of Emmanuel. And I think the final one covers who who is Jesus. So is there anything else, Dan? Yeah, to go more to sort of theological discussion side, we've had a few, haven't we, specifically and openly talking about the Trinity and whether or not it's got a founding in the Bible and, and and thinking of alternatives and 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 evaluating that. So I think there's about three episodes yeah. there that are related to that idea that, that I think you've you've got involved in yeah. most of those. But another helpful resource, another a different podcast actually that to specifically dive into that in a much deeper way is Dale Tuggy's podcast called Trinities. Okay. Yeah. Popular podcast that he, he um is um a bit of an expert in that field and and delves into yeah. all sorts of different niche topics within that. So that's if you want something very deep dive, then there's some interesting things than that. And I, I suppose when we set out to do this podcast, we never claimed to be highly trained, qualified theologians in an academic sense. Dale, I think, is is approaching it more from that that angle and that's really useful. You know, while we come from a Unitarian perspective, that's not the only thing we talk about. We're not, right. we're not a one-trick pony no. <laughs> <laughs> in that sense. You know, we, we try and cover lots of different that's aspects right. of the Bible and the hope of the Bible. Okay, thanks. So look up those, those resources and, and have a look around on BibleFeed.org for some of the other things we've done. So just to close out this episode, I think we'll probably have time for one more episode this year. But as 2022 draws to a close, it kind of feels like the world is in a strange and uncertain place. But hope that these podcasts and thinking about the Bible as ordinary people is is helpful in, in focusing on something a little more certain that might be an anchor for, for the soul. So stay safe, everyone, and stay warm. And, uh, and if you're unsure what to do, take a look at BibleFeed.org. Mm-hmm.